The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. I thought we could begin tonight by just checking in about uh, our city practice, and then after we do that, if there are any comments or questions, then I'll go back to the topic I began last week, which is appreciative joy as a practice, uh, actually as a wisdom practice, a way of practicing not just in our formal sit, but throughout the day, using the scene of beauty or the scene of joy or pleasantness as a way, as a path of awakening. But first, let's just reflect about our sitting practice. Make sure that, especially for newer folks, that you're clear about basic instructions and you know that there are a lot of ways that I and other teachers talk about sitting. So some systems, you know, they tell you exactly what to do more here at Common Ground, there are different suggestions during different guided sits, and so it may feel like, well, what the heck am I supposed to do when I sit? Just tell me what to do. (laughs) But generally, you figure it out over time, over a long time. But if you have any questions, it's really useful to ask them, probably for yourself, but especially for other people. Because one of the nicest things about city practice is when you realize that It's often a frustrating experience for everybody, not just for you and not just for beginners. And uh, and that the kinds of experiences that I'm having is similar to the kinds of experiences other people are having. And it just helps to normalize this. We we feel like, oh, we're in this together. That it's, it's simple, the practice of being mindful or aware but that doesn't mean it's easy, just because the instructions are simple. So any questions about basic sitting practice or even comments that you'd like to share with the group? that's a good sign. So, is your hand up, Edwin? Uh, Is that, Jim, did you turn that fan on medium? We can turn it to low or it will get quieter. And then if that's still too noisy, Edwin, just let me know. Uh, I don't know. You're going to have to try both ways. Thanks, Wendell. Sure. And real loud, Wendell, because it has to go around the corner here to the other people. Yeah, that's a really good question. And and it kind of, it's a question too about, well, what are we doing when we're meditating? Because 
sometimes people can, especially with the kinds of instructions I gave tonight, which was more less on the technique end of the spectrum of meditation instructions and more like uh, um, talking about the intention in practice without giving specific instructions. And when we hear instructions or guidance that it's just about being open, then we could think, well, I sit down, and when I practice being open, a lot of this old habit energy, which is quite negative, just comes to the surface, and it begins to repeat itself over and over again. And it can seem like, and actually it's appropriate if it occurs to us, like, well, this doesn't seem helpful. It seems like I'm just reinforcing something that's not helpful. And it's actually possible that you might be reinforcing something that's not helpful. It all depends on um, your relationship to, let's call it, you know, that negative habit or negative mental pattern that's coming up, repeating itself. And uh, often it's mixed, meaning that there's some sense of understanding that this is happening, that it's a negative pattern and it's like this. And to that degree that there is some spaciousness around that negative pattern, to that degree you're not identified with it, you're not caught up in it, and you're undermining it. But to the degree that you, the mind is attached or identified with the content, with the pattern, then to that degree it's getting reinforced, so to speak. It's strengthening. Because what strengthens these patterns is when we take them to be self. You know, I'm, you know, I want to go do this. You know, I want to get revenge. And when we take that personally, that kind of mental constriction or mental clinging is part of that reinforcing process. And the thing about meditation practice is, is we're creating a quiet container so that when negativity comes up, when negative emotions, negative habits emerge, they're doing this in this very nice, quiet space. They don't have much competition. And uh, so if we can't be mindful of negative patterns when they're coming up, even something, you know, relatively, uh, you know, not, not like extremely negative, but just like thinking about our future, wanting a nice house, speculating about things, does he like me, does she like me, does she hate me, those sorts of things, you know, which are sort of more commonplace, but on the unwholesome side of the spectrum. Um, even those thoughts, we want to uh, understand them for what they are. And if we can't bring some wisdom to them, it's really good to put the, uh, I guess the, the bottom line is that we have to take responsibility for how the mind is. And if we don't have the spaciousness to see the thoughts as just thoughts or the negative emotions, negative patterns as just negative patterns, just unwholesome thoughts, in a sense of not, in the sense of not being attached or identified with them, then it's, it's actually good to do something else with the mind. Even though they may be predominant, we are now strategically maybe reflecting on something wholesome. So instead of giving our attention to what's unwholesome with attachment or identification, we're putting our mind somewhere else. 
including like, I really care about this predicament of feeling overwhelmed with negative thoughts. Because all of a sudden you're in a wholesome state now by recognizing that you have compassion for yourself for being caught up in negativity. Or just reflecting on anything that's wholesome. So the Buddha once gave a set of instructions from very subtle to very gross, basically saying that when the mind is afflicted with unwholesome thoughts, that you should first try a very subtle technique, but if that doesn't work, use a more gross technique until if nothing works, if none of the better, more subtle techniques work, then you should, uh, I think the way it's translated is use mind to crush mind. So you're, you're kind of rallying your willfulness, like, I'm not going there. I am not going to repeat this pattern. I'm not going to think about revenge or whatever might be unwholesome. And you're, you're basically struggling with your mind. Now, it's not a very successful technique, but it's slightly better than just allowing the mind to get lost in negative patterns. That's the last thing we want to do. Because if we just give in to the negative patterns, the only result of that is they get stronger, they get reinforced. So whatever works, this is really a pragmatic tradition. So whatever actually supports the mind dwelling in wholesome states, that's what we should do. And then over time, the uh, way that the mind rests in wholesome states we want to use the lightest touch possible. So ultimately, the most wholesome technique is no te technique at all. We allow everything to come and go, but the technique, if you want to call it that, is just not getting attached to anything that comes and goes. So that's how we deal with the negative states. They still come and go, but there's no identification or attachment to them. But that's not so easy to practice for us most of the time. But when we can practice, you can call that like open attention as a technique. If you want to give it a word or words, a phrase, you can call that open attention practice. So there's no technique except to be open and not attached to what comes and goes or to what's being known. But then we want many other things in our back pocket to be able to use when the mind is in, is in a more afflicted state. So that we have a lot, we have a kind of confidence that no matter what, mind state I'm up against, I know how to practice with it. So even when a really strong negativity comes up, a lot of hatred or a lot of aggression or a lot of lust or something like that, that we know how to work with it. We have different options. And we can try this, and if that doesn't work, we can try that. But we're not going to give up. We're not going to just give in to the negativity. And then over time, you just start picking up the different techniques along that spectrum from subtle to gross. Jerry? I just was wondering if you could talk more about this concept of space. Uh, I don't really, I, I imagine either being, sometimes when I'm meditating, it feels like there's this vast space. And other times I'm wondering if it means more um, like watching thoughts like a, a movie screen. Are you going to take the Monday night Buddhist studies class? Yeah. Yeah, we'll cover it a lot because the, the next Monday night class for more experienced people that are interested in that, uh, it's going to be on the three refuges 
the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. And uh, as a, in terms of meditation practice, the Buddha represents that space. You know, and, and, and it's, this is where words kind of get a little messy. You know, whether you call it Buddha or whether you call it the space of the heart or the stillness, the kind of uh, background stillness in the mind in the midst of all the activity. And it's, it's really an insight because most of us, like by definition, you know, the Buddha's definition, we're all ignorant to some degree. And by that, he means that we have minds that are fixed, attached to the different objects that are being known, different conditions in the moment, like the condition, the sensations of my body, or the memories that are coming up, or the temperature in the room, or the images. The mind has an experience, and it gets attached, or identified, or fixed to that. And in, in, in kind of absorbing into the different conditions, attached to the different conditions, it loses this understanding, or intuitive understanding, of the space of the present moment, or the Buddha. So the Buddha never goes anywhere. This sort of intuitive, like the space of this room is always here, but how often do you recognize that there's space in this room? Probably not until I just mentioned it, you know. But we're living and breathing and moving in space all day long, but we don't tend to give it much attention. We tend to notice the things going on in the space, in the room. We, we might, you know, if we're lucky, we notice there are walls. But the walls are not the space in the room. And they don't even contain the space. The space includes the walls beyond that. And see, this is something that intuitively we can learn to recognize in our mind, the same sense of space. We have these six sense gates, the five physical senses, and the thoughts, images in the mind, right? And this is how we know the world, through these six things. And all six of these things, sounds, smells, tastes, touches, sights, thoughts, and images, all of those arise, and let's just call it, give it a word. I'm not saying it's just a word. Let's say they all arise in the space of the heart. So can we learn, can we practice intuitively recognizing the space of the heart. But you see, it can never be something that we know, because then it's something being known. Then it's one of these six things. It's like a concept, or it's a sound, or it's a tactile experience. But the space is here. It's true, even if it can't be grasped by concept, even if it can't be pointed to. It's still here. And it can be intuitively recognized with insight, and the more we recognize that, it radically puts all of the things that are being known into perspective. It changes our relationship to Dhamma. Dhamma is all the conditions. I mean, that's one of the definitions of Dhamma or Dharma. It's the conditions that are being known. Sound, it's, you know, these six things that are being known. And they're being known by Buddha. Buddha knows Dhamma. When Buddha knows Dhamma, Sangha arises. These are the three refuges in Buddhism. Sangha is, is uh, our response in life when we're not attached, which means it's kindness and forgiveness and compassion and gratitude, love. Mm -hmm. It's our difficulty with getting to the spaciousness. 
Did you say? Could you repeat that? Yeah. Yeah. So the the question is really, like, why is it so hard to recognize the spaciousness? And uh, you know, the mind, the basic ignorance is the mind is attached to the object. So what is driving that attachment, that fixation on the particular objects that are being known? And we can say, again, this is just language, but we can say it's being driven by a self-centered view or a sense of separation, like you suggested. What's your name? Nick. Nick. So Nick suggested, you like, is this uh, is the sense of separation sort of driving this not seeing the spaciousness? And I think that's about right. Um, so this is like, uh, and last week I mentioned that the direct way of practicing, you know, in the Buddha's Eightfold Path, we have three categories. The wisdom category, which is we're purifying our view. The samadhi category, where we're purifying the content of the mind from unwholesome or negative states to wholesome states. And then purifying our actions, so the ethical realm of practice. So we have three realms of practice, working with our view or understanding, working with the content in the mind, and working with our actions in the world, the way we relate to things in the world, other people, community, our self, our body. So this is now we're really talking about purifying the view. And we, we walk around with a dualistic view, a sense of self and others. So we're, we feel apart from the world. And because of this sense of separation, we have a particular relationship to everything we see and hear and smell and taste and think about, which is, do I want it or do I not want it? And so that that drives that clinging, the grasping after objects. Either we grasp it in order to throw it away because we don't like it, or we grasp it because we like it. And so, or we ignore it because it seems neutral. So the 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 habit, the basic cause of suffering the way the Buddha described it is clinging but the clinging arises because of the dualism because your self we relate to experiences from a self-centered point of view and then from a self-centered point of view or you could probably say ego point of view then we have a particular relationship where we will grasp try to hold on to the pleasant try to get rid of the unpleasant and ignore the neutral and that drives it so in order to sort of practice spaciousness, it's like one of those chicken and eggs. It's like we have to be enlightened. I, I'm sort of being a little provocative. But we have to be enlightened in order to allow things to come and go, to not cling, to not fixate on the particular objects that are being known. Any of you, you know, a lot of us in this room, we practice mindfulness of breathing as a basic technique. And it's such a great uh, metaphor for this wise view, like the purification of our view. Because we're just trying to let the breath come and go. But what we do is like we want to be a good meditator and we grasp the breath. Okay, I'm here. And you know, we kinda but that doesn't feel good. And it you we just get tight or frustrated or bored. But if we really are just the Buddha knowing Dhamma, just this sense of clear intimate awareness, knowing the natural breathing process in the body, it's quite wonderful. But it's not easy to get there because we're always 
from this self-centered point of view. I'm a meditator trying to watch the breath. So that's why, you know, we can't hear instructions like, well, just rest in the space of the present moment. And in that space of the present moment, notice the natural knowing of the in-breath and the natural knowing of the out-breath. And also notice what gets in the way of knowing the in-breath and what gets in the way of knowing the out-breath. And know that too. Just know the obstacles that arise as obstacles. When there are no obstacles, just know the in-breath as it is. Know the out-breath as it is. So there really is a sense of ease or freedom, even in the basic technique of mindfulness of breathing. So however way we go about it, it's about purifying that view of separation. But we can't go directly to, you know, okay, I'm not going to see things from a separate point of view, because that statement is already coming from that separate point of view. Like, I'm an ignorant human being who shouldn't be seeing things from a separate point of view. Darn it. And that itself reinforces that view. The thinking that I'm a separate, you know, I'm, I've got a wrong view. The, the way beyond that view is to learn to intuitively, it's an insight to begin to trust that there is something to relax into. And we call this, in this tradition, we call it Buddha. So Buddha is not this historic guy. It's something that we're already living and swimming in, so to speak. But we, we keep missing it, just like we keep missing the space of the room. Greg? Uh, lately, I've been giving myself permission to open to moments when I have a strong sense of desire rather than act on it, just be with what's going on. And usually what's going on is pain, the pain of not having what it is I want. And so I'm just allowing myself to stay with it, and it's painful. And um, a lot of times that mind state will just evolve into another mind state, and I forget about it, but then the pain comes back. And after a while, I get tired of it. And so eventually, I think the way to that pain just I'll go ahead and indulge myself just to get rid of it. But you know, it's for me, it's like I'm in a, I guess it's still an experiment to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know how to open to this moment of desire and, and not indulge it, but it's sooner or later I'm gonna. It's because the habit's so strong. Yeah. It's been there all my life, and so I'm not sure where the break. Yeah. Did you hear Greg in the back? Could you hear him? So he was talking about being mindful of the pain of desire, just like the Buddha calls it, you know, that desire is burning. So this is an insight, just to know that desire is painful, because superficially, desire feels good, doesn't it? And it isn't until we have some degree of composure or presence with desire that we have the insight you're talking about. So Greg was saying that, He's learned how to have some continuity with the pain of desire. And he's with it, and he's with it. But at some point, I think you said you get exhausted. And then, you know, either distract yourself, or you get lost in something else, or you find eventually, because of the exhaustion, that you indulge in it. And so, one of the tricks, because it is withering, because something is, when something's painful, uh, it is possible to be mindful of it, and it's quite skillful to be mindful of it. But remember what I was saying earlier, when, when we open to something unpleasant, it's going to trigger this very ancient habit, which is to get rid of it, to want to fix it, right? But here we are practicing being mindful of it. 
So, in order to be mindful of it, there is this very profound activity of feeling the impulse to react, but not picking it up. Feeling the impulse to get rid of it, but not picking it up. Feeling the impulse to get rid of it, but not picking it up. That's what's exhausting about it. And at some point, we should notice that the mind, that the sense of presence is getting withered. That it's not as clear, it's not as resilient, it's not as nimble. And then at that point, even though the desire still may be the predominant thing in the present moment, we strategically turn the attention somewhere else to refresh the practice. So that's maybe when, you know, if you're, if you're just sort of practicing in your daily life, that may be where you go someplace pleasant, you know, whether it's taking a hot bath or a walk around the block or something that's not unwholesome but that's pleasant. Because then your mind will enjoy paying attention to that. You know, it could even be working out, shooting a few baskets, knitting, but you're kind of giving your mind something neutral or wholesome to pay attention to, <clears throat> bring some joy into the mind, look at a pretty book, you know, read some poetry, <clears throat> get a hug from a friend. And you're sort of consciously or intentionally distracting yourself from the unpleasantness of the desire, removing yourself from that. That's really useful. And then when you feel... Uh, replenished and that if don't go looking for that desire but if that desire is still alive in you then open to it because not because you want to get to the bottom of it but because this is how it is so we have to be careful a lot of times we've got these sort of patterns and it's a little bit like having a scab and we want to keep checking it but we don't have to check it it will announce itself but if it doesn't announce itself then appreciate the break because it won't, you know, it won't go away until we see it all the way through. But we don't have to go looking for it. We, we can let it arise in its own time, in its own way. But it is important to know that we do get exhausted in practice. And we need, this kind of goes back to Wendell, my response to Wendell, Wendell, which is we need a whole spectrum of practices so that uh, when the mind gets withered and tired, that we can give it something to do that will be wholesome and uh, rejuvenating. Any other comments, Tom? Real loud, Tom, so they can yeah. hear you. How much, um, how much um, of my, would you, how much would you think <coughs> my ego and self-centeredness have to do with, and I, I don't mean any disrespect here at all, yeah. bringing down here to listen to the talks and to be a Yeah. Well, initially, he said, how much, of it, uh, how much of his ego or self-centeredness is responsible for getting him here tonight? <coughs> Which is a good point. We all come to this practice as self-centered, deluded beings, from, from using Buddhist terminology. So deluded in the sense that we see things from the point of view of self. So that's what we mean by deluded, not that we're stupid, but that we have this view where we see our things in terms of self and then the rest of the universe, others, this and that. That's, we all come. Because if we didn't have that view, we wouldn't need to practice. So 
the, the, the Dharma, the teachings of the Buddha, which is also call, called Dhamma or Dharma, it's just a story for deluded people. But it's a particular kind of story that turns the mind away from a kind of intoxication to turning the mind toward a more direct experience of things. So uh, uh, seeing things free of our interpretation or free of our concepts. So absolutely we need the, the ego. The ego from day one has been trying to be happy. And then what happens is we try to be happy in so many ways and, and all we do is get frustrated. So then eventually we, we hear about this way of being happy, you know, and we check it out. And this way seems different than all the other ways which haven't worked. A lot of what keeps us here initially is that, not that we feel much benefit from the practice, but we are so thoroughly convinced that the other ways don't work. You know, drinking doesn't work. Having a big bank account doesn't work. You know, being loved by countless people doesn't work. Being beautiful doesn't work. And we go on and on. Not that these things are bad, but they're all limited. And to some degree, at least, we know that it's limited. I'm not saying that I don't get anything out of this. Yeah, yeah, no, no. I, I, I think it was a good question. Because that also is what brings us to our medica- meditation cushion or our meditation chair at home. We're often coming to it uh, and especially in the beginning from this self-centered point of view but then when we start practicing we go beyond that so once we sit down we're in our cushion even though we got here because we want to be respected as a meditator you know I'm the guy who goes sits every day so I better do it because otherwise I won't be able to tell my friends that I'm a meditator <laughs> but then once we're actually meditating then when that thought arises that yeah I better stay here because I want my friends to know I'm a meditator then we see that from the Dhamma point of view, which is that's just a thought being known in the present moment. It's not my thought, it's just a thought. And when we have pain in the knee, it's not my pain, it's just pain being known. And when the mind's restless, it's just restlessness being known. It's not me being restless. And when we think it's a stupid practice, it's just doubt being known. So then the practice is when we practice going beyond that old view in the cultivation of another view, which is conditions being known, and it's like this. Mm-hmm. Nick? Do you think it's possible, I say this with all respect, that we're trying to get to a place that might take millions of years? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But... And that's why it's so darn hard. It's, yeah, it may take millions of years. That's actually a useful attitude to have a real, a vast view about our practice. Because then when we do the practice, there's not a lot of striving, which is a problem. Because if we're too focused on being a suffering human being and wanting to get beyond that, it gets in the way of practicing effectively. Because so much of the practice is about trusting. And when we have that really long-term view... Not that we want to hold tightly to it, because we don't actually know if it, if insight or awakening is around the corner or a million years from now or a million lifetimes from now. But what we do know is that, that there is this practice that to whatever degree we trust it, that we have personally experienced wholesome results from it. And that's, that's quite uh, a cause for trust. And, and gratitude 
you know, just that there's a path. Human beings don't mind working hard, you know. All we have to do is look around at all the stuff we've done on this planet, not necessarily good stuff, but stuff that have required, has required a lot of work, you know, like building the pyramids or whatever. So human beings know how to work, but what we don't want to do is do something that has no result. So I think people are willing to put time into the practice if they think, if they have noticed directly that it's beneficial. And it, regardless of how long it takes to get to the nth degree of awakening, because like the Buddha said, it's good, it's useful in the beginning, in the middle, and in the end. We don't have to wait until that, that we've uprooted that self-centered view to the nth degree before we experience benefit. I certainly have experienced a lot of benefit in my life. I bet many people in this room can say, I've really benefited from this practice. But I don't think anybody in this, in this room would claim to be fully enlightened. So this is the great thing, that the, the benefit comes all the way along the practice. And so we hold, it's important to hold out like an aspiration for full awakening, meaning that we've really uprooted any remnants of greed and aversion and self-centeredness from the mind stream. So I think it's good to hold that out, like you can call that, from a Buddhist point of view, that's an arhat, somebody who's fully enlightened. But I don't know any arhats, I mean, not that I know of, at least, but I'm really fine with that concept or that aspiration. And, uh, but I'm also really grateful for just the benefit that I've already received in my practice. So it's like we want both. We want to be, uh, appreciate where we're at, but also hold this possibility of really so, fur so thoroughly having awakened that the mind isn't going to fall back into confusion, self-centered confusion again. I think that's a nice aspiration to hold. And whether the Buddha was that, I mean, we, of course, we don't know. Um, but we could just, you know, just as an image, we could just say, okay, we'll just imagine this guy back when was one of these fully enlightened beings. You know, just as like a placeholder, you know, a metaphor for full awakening. We've got this person, and uh, maybe there are many people like that. According, you know, at the time of the Buddha, there were evidently thousands, and you know, probably there are people on this planet now who are, who knows? But you know, we could just keep an open mind about it. Uh -huh, Mike. Uh, A little bit louder, Mike. Yeah. 